It's Tuesday, October 4th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, from the annals of everyday objects our ancestors were once super concerned about, electric push buttons. Like on-off buttons on any basic device. And you know what? They kind of had a point. Plus, on its 60th anniversary, let's take a look at one of the most pernicious predictions the Jetsons actually got right about our present day. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. In our increasingly touchscreen world, many of us long for the tactile satisfaction of physical push buttons. It's part of why I've yet to upgrade from my iPhone 8. I don't want to say goodbye to pressing the home button, even though I know, yes, it's not actually a button, it uses haptics to feel like I'm pressing it. I am the exact kind of fool that turn-of-the-century people thought we would all become if we allowed the use of electric push buttons. Electric push buttons, meaning like doorbells or elevator buttons, anything in which you press a button, something happens, and you can't actually observe at all how that process happened. Which was exactly the problem for some folks in the late 19th to early 20th century. It wasn't some superstitious fear about the devil and electricity like we might like to think our simple-minded ancestors thought. No, they actually had a really good point, and one which makes me feel a bit inadequate. But first, backing up to explain more about push buttons. Quoting JSTOR Daily, Electric push buttons, essentially on-off switches for circuits, came on the market in the 1880s. As with many technological innovations, they appeared in multiple places in different forms. Their predecessors were such mechanical and manual buttons as the keys of musical instruments and typewriters. Before electricity, buttons triggered a spring mechanism or a lever. The word button itself comes from the French bouton, meaning pimple or projection, and to push or thrust forward. It's impossible to pinpoint a single origin of the push button, writes media studies scholar Rachel Plotnick, but such interfaces included the inanimate buttons that adorned clothing. Between 1880 and 1920, hundreds of patent applications were made for electric buttons or push buttons, end quote. These were sometimes marketed by electrical device companies as simplistic and worry-free. The Eastman Company's slogan for Kodak cameras was, You press the button, we do the rest, which did nothing to assuage the concerns of their critics. See, back in the late 19th century, it was more common to understand how the items you owned or interacted with worked, even electric ones, of which Plotnik says many laypeople had a working knowledge. They understood the relationship between any buttons they pushed and its outcomes, as well as its inner workings. Matthew Wills, who wrote the JSTOR Daily piece, says that even some children would have known how to make electric bells, buttons, and buzzers. The idea of self-sufficiency and of learning how emerging technologies worked seemed to just sort of be the thing to do. So when this electrical push button came about that intentionally sought to shroud its inner workings from the user, some suspected that it would, quoting Wills, seal off the wonders of technology into a black box. End quote. In Plotnik's full paper, published back in 2012 in the journal Technology and Culture, she writes, referring to early 20th century educator and activist Dorothy Canfield Fisher, quote, 
Fisher recognized how the use of push-button interfaces had contributed to making electrical experiences effortless, opaque, and therefore unquestioned by consumers. She and others worried that if button pressers could not envision the mechanical processes that happened behind buttons, they would lose all ability to navigate in the world. End quote. Which, as alarmist as that sounds, did kind of happen. Engineers, sit this one out, but do the rest of you know how your doorbell, an intercom, or even the button on your electric toothbrush works? Maybe you've got a general idea, most people don't even have that, but could you fix it on your own? Writ large, we really have lost the self-sufficiency that people used to have, apparently. And I do get that self-sufficiency argument. You know, I often think about how if some sort of apocalyptic situation happened, one where there were still some survivors and I among them for some reason, I wouldn't have any clue how to fix, let alone make more of, so many of our everyday items, especially without Google to look it up on. As Dorothy Fisher wrote in 1916, as quoted in Plotnik's paper, quote, The fact that so often in modern America one may press a button and be served seems to relieve one of any necessity for responsibility about what goes on behind the button. End quote. Which makes me think about one reason there were so many buttons in the Jetsons. Like, press one button and a fully cooked meal emerges. In one episode, Jane Jetson bemoans not being as good of a button pusher as her mom was. Like, someone might say they're not as good a cook as their mom. The push button in the early 20th century, and I suppose extending for some into the 60s when the Jetsons debuted, was the very epitome of blissfully ignorant convenience. One press of the button, and whatever you want happens or is dispensed. And if the button doesn't work, well, no way to manually get what you want or figure out what's wrong, like a McDonald's milkshake machine. And considering how little the vast majority of us actually understand what goes on behind a push button, it is funny how many of us also long for those physical push buttons in an increasingly touchscreen and voice-activated world. Like, I remember seeing the interior of the Crew Dragon capsule for the first time with its huge wall of tablet controls, where all the buttons and knobs used to be, and I was kind of freaked out. Like, what if the tablet broke? Then you couldn't do anything. Whereas with buttons, if one of them broke, or even like one whole panel, you would still be able to perform other functions and maybe some workarounds. But when you think about it, it's not entirely rational that we trust something more just because we can physically press it. Especially when so many of us don't even understand how that function works either. Yet for some reason, the fact that you can feel and see and hear a button being engaged makes you feel more secure. At least some of us. Plotnik and Wills talk about the black box of push buttons, that world where you could have no clue what's happening and thus lack a bit of control over it. And some activists at the turn of the century pushed back against that, wanting to do all they could to help keep society more self-sufficient. But, as Wills writes, quote, Ultimately, the idea that electricity was a kind of magic would triumph over a more hands-on, demystifying approach. End quote. And I wonder if there's a periodic shift that happens in what we consider the black box. For example, when online commerce and personal banking first emerged, I was so skeptical about it. Like, just putting all your financial info out there online? People really thought it was safe to pay their bills on the internet? 
Writing checks and mailing bills or ordering through catalogs on the phone, let alone straight up going to a store, still felt safer to me. But nowadays, as accustomed as I am to tracking numbers for online purchases or for mailing packages, whenever I have to send something important through the mail, like in a paper envelope, not a parcel, so the kind that doesn't qualify for tracking, I get so paranoid. How will I know if this little piece of paper is lost? I think for me, this anxiety really set in back in 2012, when my absentee ballot for the general election never arrived thanks to Hurricane Sandy hitting New York City just before the election. Or I say it was because of the hurricane, I have no way of knowing what really happened there. And for the last 10 years, I have felt more and more secure doing things online, where, ironically nowadays, there's often more of a paper trail. So knowing how much I'm capable of doing a 180 on something like that, I try to keep my mind open to the possibility that I will do the same on other concepts, like tactile push buttons. Maybe sometime soon, a touchscreen will seem so much more reliable and comprehensible to me than push buttons. Though I do still feel pretty humbled to realize that people living at the end of the 19th century might have known more about how all those buttons work than I do now. Well, speaking of the Jetsons, as I said in that last segment, the first iteration of the Jetsons debuted in the 1960s, 1962 to be exact, which means this year is its 60th anniversary. I talked about the Jetsons a little bit at the start of August when the internet decided that George Jetson must have been born on July 31st, 2022. And spoiler for that segment, there's no canonical evidence that George Jetson was born on July 31st, but there's reasonable evidence that he was born in 2022. A little baby George Jetson is out there somewhere. Link in the show notes to listen to that whole segment. I was never like a huge Jetsons fan growing up. Both the original 60s series and the later mid-80s seasons were in syndication all the time when I was a kid, so I definitely watched it, but I wasn't, like, asking for an Elroy Jetson lunchbox or something. As an adult, however, I've become increasingly fascinated by the show. Retrofuturism writ large is really intriguing. Seeing what people in the past thought the future would look like is both revealing in their priorities and biases of the time, as well as a cool look at creativity through time. And of course, it's always fun to see what they got right and what we maybe wish they had. With the Jetsons, it's kind of taken one step further because, you know, it's a cartoon. So while there's some social commentary there, a lot of it is played for laughs. And there is so much of it. While one good retrofuturist treatise or news special might showcase a dozen hypothesized household items, the 75 episodes of the Jetsons required constant cooking up of new ways these humans interacted with the world in 2062. That kind of creative challenge and constraint always yields some pretty offbeat concepts. Smaller inventions like autonomous hygiene robots that shave and brush you while you don't have to lift a finger haven't really come to fruition. Neither have flying cars, although I've mentioned on here before a few companies with decent prototypes. And sure, we've got 30 years to go before we hit the year the Jetsons was set in, but it does seem like things like gravity belts and cities basically floating in the sky probably won't happen by then. 
Sometimes I and others think of the internet, and perhaps more specifically the web and social media, as the big reason that we don't have a lot of the more device-oriented inventions that were hallmarks of retrofuturism. You know, our money, attention, the really smart scientists, all went into the internet business, or at least way more so than anyone would have predicted back in the 60s. The World Wide Web set us on a sort of different timeline. But Stephen J. Downs, in an issue of Future Tense published in Slate, argues we have largely achieved the future the Jetsons depicted. First, he points out a lot of the devices that we actually do have, whether because the show predicted them or inventors were inspired by the show. They may not have the mid-century design, but we have self-driving robot vacuums, voice-controlled devices, video conferencing complete with filters to make you look better or like a cat, robots that play with kids, video-based exercise classes like Pelotons, doctors making remote house calls, pocket-sized wireless communication devices, huge screens everywhere on which we can read the news embedded with videos and touch our thumbs to make things happen from taking photos to ordering food. Johnny Ive even pushed his design team to imagine what the Jetsons would have had when working on the new iMac in the late 90s, and thus the iMac G3, with its brightly colored, semi-translucent, egg-shaped monitors that Downs shows in a side-by-side -side, do look exactly like the kinds of monitors the Jetson family used for video conferencing. Our moving sidewalks mostly exist in airports rather than from building to building, and most of our domestic robots don't have faces, though Amazon's Astro is trying to change that. It all looks a bit different, but many of the everyday technologies of the Jetsons are actually here already, with many more in development. But beyond the objects, Downs argues that we have largely achieved the fundamental motif of the Jetsons, a focus on convenience. Or perhaps more precisely, our technology continues to develop with that focus. Whether it's pressing a button and getting a fully cooked meal, never having to walk anywhere, or working a three-hour-a-day, three-days-a-week work week, the Jetsons was replete with examples of technology-enabling leisure, and the characters still finding conflict and ways to complain about it. Downs situates this within the historical context of the show when it was first dreamt up by Hanna-Barbera in the early 60s, quote, There is an optimism at the heart of the Jetsons. The nuclear fission born from the Manhattan Project contained an astonishing power that ended the war with Japan and had since been transformed into a seemingly magical source of everyday fuel for the growing economy and new household capabilities. Rockets had blasted Alan Shepard, followed by Gus Grissom, John Glenn, and Scott Carpenter into space. Televisions were starting to broadcast in color, and Moore's Law, which held that the density of integrated circuits would double every two years, was beginning to manifest, even if it had yet to be articulated by Gordon Moore. That idea, that technology would get smaller, faster, cheaper, and more powerful year after year, along with the breakthroughs in space technology and nuclear and atomic science, led to a techno-optimism that was part of the zeitgeist of the early 1960s. It also followed two decades of rapidly rising home ownership and steady rises in the adoption of household appliances, like refrigerators, air conditioners, washing machines, and vacuum cleaners, and of course, personal automobiles. Science was cool, technology was blossoming, and more and more Americans were dreaming of owning their homes replete with the latest gadgets. 
The Jetsons took that dream and supercharged it, riding the wave of optimism to depict a future where technology catered to our every need, at the touch of a button or at the command of our voice. It was a fantastical vision that deeply appealed to our needs and desires for comfort and convenience. Life on the Jetsons was anything but hard. Jetsons' world was also clean, even antiseptic. In hindsight, it's easier to see what's missing, besides people of color. Nature, for example, was not entirely absent, but it only makes a few cameos. It's as if, in a future where technology reigns, we don't need it anymore. Food, it's not clear where it comes from, is at best efficient and seemingly never enjoyed. And of course, Judy, the teenage daughter, is on a diet. End quote. So yes, convenience as the one true goal, a goal which many in the tech industry are still pushing towards, and which many of us want, even if it becomes clear the trade-offs that come from it, a lack of privacy, handing over rights to our personal data, environmental impacts, mental or physical health concerns, we often still come around to it as everyone else does too. It's the concerns of Dorothy Canfield Fisher and other push-button critics on steroids. Now, we don't just not know how the buttons we're pressing or tapping on a touchscreen work, we may not remember any other way to complete the task. And more crucially, as Down points out, we failed then and often continue to fail now to consider those trade-offs, those long-term consequences when we yearn for and implement ever more convenient technologies. He wonders whether the dreams of the Jetsons and other mid-century retro-futurist narratives inspired a generation of innovators to focus on technologies of convenience, or whether, quote, by extrapolating from the emerging technologies of the time, the writers brilliantly imagined a future that was effectively predestined in any market-driven society, end quote. While simultaneously brainstorming expansively and cracking critical jokes, the one thing the show didn't do, Downs points out, is follow the logic through to what such extreme convenience would do to human health. And this, to me, feels like one of the big failings of any burst of innovation in a society, and one that's especially hard to not sometimes feel a little bitter about, or at least conflicted. You know, we achieved so much, paved the way for the potential for such good living, at least for some people, but, well, first, we didn't create equitable opportunities for all, and we also failed to think through all the possible long-term consequences on our bodies on the environment, on our psyches, on society writ large. Downs really focuses on human health, pointing out that in the 60 years since the Jetsons first premiered, we've seen huge rises in so-called lifestyle diseases. But I really want to zoom out to so many other consequences that fall under the Ian Malcolm header of being so preoccupied with if you could and not stopping to think if you should. And sure, we could make the argument that it can be tough in the moment to see how badly something will affect the world in the long term. There were some concerns about deforestation and coal initially, but they didn't seem big enough to outweigh the benefits. We can blame Mark Zuckerberg for more recent decisions, but it's tough to predict that an 18-year-old kid building a website to rank hot girls on campus would end up accidentally splintering American democracy. Quoting Downs, at the end of each episode of The Jetsons, George takes Astro for a walk on the treadmill cantilevered off of their apartment. A cat momentarily jumps on the treadmill, spooking Astro and sending George tumbling. George is then stuck to the treadmill, going around and around, unable to stand up and unable to let go, screaming, Stop this crazy thing! 
The Jetsons treadmill serves as a metaphor for our current predicament. We generate new technologies, which we use to create new products and services, which lead us to unhealthy lifestyles that make us ill. Then we create products and services like treadmills and Fitbits to try to compensate for these lifestyles and new medicines to make the resulting illnesses tolerable. And then more technologies, products, and services that make our lifestyles even less healthy and then around the cycle again and again. And like poor George, we find it hard to extract ourselves from this cycle. Our economy demands growth, and each element of the cycle, the new products, the compensating products, the medicine, feeds that growth. The writers of the Jetsons might have missed the impact of their envisioned world on people's health, but they clearly had some misgivings about the space-age future they animated. Through their occasional insertion of machine malfunctions and, most viscerally, when they trapped poor George on the treadmill, they warned us. Sixty years of pursuing their vision has brought us, as Paul Simon once put it, the age of miracles and wonder. And yet, those warnings also ring true. We've now learned enough to know that this pursuit comes with unsustainable consequences. We're now equipped with a more sophisticated understanding of the complex interplay among humans, technology, and the Earth. Let's use that understanding to chart a new course. End quote. All right, long episode today, so that is going to be it from me. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.